Take your Bibles and go to Job. Job chapter 1. We're at the very end of the chapter as we continue in a study on the book of Job. If you don't have sermon notes, the ushers have some. Otherwise, they're in the bulletin. Just raise your hand. They'll hand that to you. I was thinking this past week how life can change at just an instant. How all of a sudden somebody goes to the doctor's office and sitting in that doctor's office, they may hear words like cancer, terminal illness that will change the rest of their life. Change the rest of life could happen if you went to the doctor's office and all of a sudden they say, you're pregnant. That'll change your life. Okay? Your life will never be the same once those children come along. It could be changed by something that you weren't expecting. And all of a sudden you're driving down the road and then there's an accident. In a split second, your whole life could change. You could change your whole life by going to a job, an interview you weren't expecting, you're offered the job, and from then on, your life changes. It happens that way. That a lot of times, our events that we have planned, all of a sudden there's a detour, there's a change, there's, there's a turn that we weren't expecting, and the rest of our life is forever impacted. In Job chapter 1, we find that happening to a man who is considered to be one of the greatest men in the Old Testament. We've talked about his life already. We went through some of this chapter earlier, the first few verses, and we described what this man was like based upon the Word of God. This man was doing everything in his life that was busy. He had his children. He had his business. Life was moving along. And there he was, just a life that was filled with all kinds of activity and events. And in a moment, everything changed. Actually, it takes about 39 seconds to read through the text where his life changed forever. We look into the passage and we read what happened to Job, that all of a sudden there's changes in his life that it says in verse 13. There was a day when his sons and daughters, they were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And a messenger came unto Joseph and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell it. Then we read what happened next. While he was yet speaking, there came also another. He said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and has burned up the sheep, the servants, and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels, carried them away. Yea, they slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Your sons, your daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. It fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am left to tell you. In that moment, in that few moments of his life, everything changed. And then it didn't stop there. All of a sudden, we read in the days later, Satan attacks with boils. We read about that in verse 7. So went Satan forth from, in, uh, from, in chapter 2, so went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot under the crown of his head. As Job then writes about how that illness afflicted him, he gives us a lot of the details, and he tells us about the fever, the, the, the struggle he had in breathing, how there was the oozing from the sores, and there was the worms. And he just gives a very graphic picture of a terrible, terrible disease. He talks about how it lasted for not a short period, but for months. 
He gives us the, the story's details about how, as a result, he used to sit in the city gates, and everybody came to him for counsel, for advice. But now he sits in an ash heap. That's in the city dump. That's where people throw the refuse. People don't want anything to do with them. His life has changed drastically, and all the while that he's suffering this personal pain, he is mourning the loss of everything he's invested in, but worse than that, his ten children. And he'll never be recovered. Everything is, is changed. He is, there's no way the things used to be. There's a whole new normal for, Joseph, for, for Job, and Job's new normal is one of pain and suffering and agony. And yet we read in the text the phenomenal response how we read in two different occasions when he was, Satan was attacking, he said he's going to curse. We read down in chapter 1, verse 21, that Job, verse 20, he arose, rent, fell down, and worshipped, and said, Naked came I out from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Amazing. And then in his affliction and his pain, we read when his wife says, why don't you just give up and quit? Down in verse 10 of chapter 2, he says, you speak as a foolish person. What shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Now don't be mistaken. Job doesn't curse God. Job doesn't get angry. That doesn't mean Job wasn't hurting. That doesn't mean he wasn't grieving. He was. In fact, we read about how he is seen by others grieving sorely. Don't, don't be mistaken. Job doesn't know why this happened, and he is wondering. He doesn't curse God, but he is wondering, and he will go into a whole conversation about why. Why did this happen to me? Don't be mistaken. Job doesn't know what's going to happen on the morrow. He has no clue, is it going to get worse? It can't get much worse, but could it? And in all of this upheaval, the chapter 2 ends with something that is positive. It ends with something that Job has, that doesn't go away, something that Job knows. It's an interesting text. It talks about Job's three friends. Now, there's going to be a fourth one that shows up. But all of a sudden, in all of this agony and pain, we read about Job's three friends. Now, it's true. Later on, they're going to argue with Job. Later on, they're going to have conversations that they are going to cause Job to say, you guys have become miserable counselors. Because they're trying to explain to Job that he's a bad guy because bad things only happen to bad people. They're wrong, but that's what they think. And so later on, there's going to be a little bit of a problem. But when we first meet his three friends, they get it right. We read about three men, and it's very simple. We read in chapter 2, starting with verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophar, the Namathite. For they had an appointment together to come to mourn with him, to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off, they knew him not. They lifted up their voice and they wept. They rent every one his mantle. They sprinkled dust upon their own heads toward the heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days, seven nights, and none spake a word unto him. For they saw that his grief was very great. They perform a man-sized ministry. They go the extra mile if their group would only expand what a ministry we could have in the world today. 
Let's just talk about these guys for a few minutes. Let's just examine a few questions. Who were they? Who are they? It gives us just small details. We hear and we've already read Eliphaz. Here's the tidbits of what we know about this guy. His name means that God is fine gold. He appears to be the oldest one in the group. The estimates are that he is probably 20, 25 years older than Job. He's probably in his mid-70s. Job around 50 at the time. Those are guesstimates. We know that this individual is from the land that is called the area of Teman, which is the capital city of the ancient land of Edom. He seems to be the leader of the group for the reason that when God speaks, God addresses him and talks to, to the, all, all the, the men, but through him directly. Coming from that land of Edom, we know from other passages of Scripture and from his own comments made later in the book that the people of Teman were known as philosophers, wise men, sages of their time, that they were individuals who seemed to be respected for their input, their counsel. And so here he comes showing up, and he has behind him age, and he probably has the skill set to be a counselor to somebody that somebody would listen to. We read about the second guy. Lots of jokes are made about his size, his height, that he was the shortest man in the Bible because he's only shoe height. That, that's supposed to be the funny things, but that's not what we know from Scripture. There was a man named Shua who was Abraham's youngest son from when he married later on in his last few years. That seems to indicate that there was a region of Shua where he came from, which means he traveled quite a distance. He came from very far north, very far east. No other time is he mentioned in Scripture than the book of Job. There's another fellow, Zophar the Naamathite. He's a fellow that seems to be the youngest, listed last, if that's how we understand the text right. Again, he's never found anywhere else in Scripture. The name's not used elsewhere. The area that he seems to come from, from ancient records and other extra-biblical archaeological digs, is probably from the area that we would say north of Israel, the Beirut, the Damascus, modern-day Lebanon area. Which, if we were to map it, and I think this is important for you to just get a sense, if what scholars think is true, these guys had to travel quite a distance to get to Job. That impacts some of what we find today. These individuals who come, here's the bulk of what we want to talk about. What did they do for Job? How was it that they're called friends and they did something friendly for him? I want to just summarize it this way. They went to him. Maybe we should use it in the, in the more positive way. They came to him. But the text very clearly says they traveled to come to Job. The idea is that they went a long distance. They did what they needed to all of a sudden come and to be with their friend. That would have required time and effort on their part. Back in those days, they wouldn't have hopped in a car. They wouldn't have done the plane. They wouldn't have done the train. They had to travel on foot or on camel. And that would have been uncomfortable, but they went a long ways to be with their friend. It means that they would have put up their own responsibilities. They would have put the mowing off. They would have put the projects off. It means that they, they would have put some time that they would have planned for their own things to go and spend time with their friend Job. It means that these individuals coordinated their schedule. Did you catch where we read? 
that they made an appointment to come at the same time. There was obviously, they didn't show up the very next day. They had to coordinate their efforts. But when they came, they coordinated it with others that they would be there and that they would spend time with Job. As true friends, they showed up. They came when it was a time where he desperately needed. I found an interesting comment. Some author was making this comment. He says, do you ever notice that when it comes to funerals, we don't send out invitations? For weddings, we do. For special events like you know, a, a party for somebody for engagement or a, a, you know, a pregnancy, we send out invitations. But we never send them for a funeral. Why is that? Because we assume that friends show up. These guys were friends. They showed up. They came. They didn't need an invite. And Job needed them. Job, no doubt, did what Jesus' disciples did. Do you remember that story in Mark 4 where Jesus is with the disciples and they leave the side of, of Galilee and they head over towards the Gadarenes, towards the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. You remember the story? Jesus is sound asleep in the boat. And the storm is brewing. These, so, these the, the disciples who are fishermen by trade, they are so terrified by the storm that they rouse Jesus and they say, don't you care that we perish? They were, they were afraid for their lives. This is a bad storm. And they make a comment. And it's very emphatic in the original language. Don't you care that we perish? What about us? Don't, you know, Lord, Lord, you, you what? In that very text... There is a phrase that I find very, very interesting. It says there was other little ships. They weren't the only boat. They weren't the only people who felt threatened. But isn't it true that when we feel a problem, we think we're the only ones? And we feel like nobody else knows what we're going through. We almost have that affliction of isolationism. That woe is me. And anybody who's gone through heartache and pain, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, Lord, what about me? Without remembering or thinking about the other little boats. And Job is in that moment where Job is struggling. Job is going to, he's not cursing God, but Job is paining and grieving. His friends went to him. They wept with him. The passage very clearly uses words that they came to sympathize. Literally, I give you the expressions how to rock somebody as if you're consoling that youngster. The idea of getting in tune with them so you're close. The idea of sharing their pain. These individuals wept with him. You read the text. We already read that. What they did is they lifted up their voice and they wept. They didn't recognize Job at first, but when they saw that it was him and somebody, maybe Job, Mrs. Job is the one that said, that's him. That really is him. They gather around him and they weep. They do what is culturally acceptable and appropriate to show that they are engaged with him, that they, they feel his pain. Nobody can actually feel it, but they are saying to, you, to him, Job, we, we don't fully understand. We haven't experienced, but we empathize the way we can. We sympathize with you. And they do this in this customary way. They don't minimize his grief. They don't say it's not that bad. They say to him, it is bad. Your pain is legitimate. They don't try to, try to say to him, hey, let's distract you with funny stories and jokes. You're hurting. We're not going to be here to be silly. We're here to pain with you, to empathize with you. They, they, they don't 
You know, they, they don't try to excuse things. They join in his heartache. They weep with him. Is that what God says you and I are supposed to do when he says to us, weep with them that weep? Relate to them. Be quiet and sit with them. They went to him. They wept with him. The text says they waited with Job. You look at the text. You see that these men came. They didn't recognize him, as I said. You would have thought that at this point they couldn't see Job because the crowd would be too great with all of the people who loved him gathering and sitting with him. But there is no indication that anybody else was with this man. In fact, if you go to chapter 19, which we did a couple weeks back, in chapter 19, Job makes comment, and he says, All of my friends, my brothers, my kinsmen have deserted me. None is with me. Do you remember he used to go to the city gate, and people, he said, would come asking him for advice, that they would stand when he would came. Nobody. Nobody is there. He is the loner. He is deserted by all. He makes the comment, he says, even my servants, they laugh at me. They don't even listen to me anymore. There is nobody, there's there's nobody that is giving his accolades, talking about how great he is. Everybody has deserted him like he's the plague incarnate. Except for his three friends. His three friends show up. Now, I don't know why everybody else left. Maybe it's because he's abhorrent. Maybe, they, maybe it's that they don't know what to say. Have you ever had that happen? Somebody you know has suffered a terrible tragedy. There's a death. And you avoid them. Because you don't know what to say. You don't want to say the wrong thing. Or maybe they're sick. And, and you don't want to face. And so many times this happens. People, I don't want to face. I, I don't like funerals. I don't like going to the hospital to see people because I don't like death and disease. Who does? Who wants to be there? Surely not the people who have to be there, but real friends show up. Real friends don't say, okay, I'm afraid I'm going to upset them, so I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to come by. Real friends, they have busy lives of their own. But this friendship is more important. These guys show up. They come. They don't, ab- they don't abandon Job. Everybody else has. Which adds to Job's hurt and his agony. That there's no one. The three friends show up. They're there. And when they show up it says they sit down with him. I find this interesting. These are three men probably of wealth probably of, of great abilities, friends who were probably in that same class that Job was, probably not used to sitting in a dump. Have you ever sat in a dump lately? You ever drive by a dump? You know it's there. How? The smell. So there's Job sitting in this dump situation, and it stinks to the proverbial high heaven. His friends, what do they do? It says they, they sat with him. You know what's amazing is these men who aren't used to it, they just sat where he was for seven days. For seven days. 
without this idea of, okay, let's get this done so we can get back to our lives. Job's needs were so important, they could drop everything for seven days. May their kind multiply. These individuals, they waited on Job. They not only waited with him, they not only went to him, they not only wept with him, they waited on Job. Did you catch it? Nobody spoke a word. Nobody said a word. This is so un-American. This is so anti-our culture. If there is a pause in a conversation of a few seconds, what do we feel we have to do? We have to fill in the gap. That's just our culture. Not in that culture. In that culture, if somebody is struggling, the courteous thing to do is to wait. Culturally, back in that time, you let them speak first out of respect to that person. I'm fine with that. But for seven days waiting for them to talk? Surely I have more things I could say in seven days. And I'm not the only one that would, that would fit. They resisted the temptation just to fill in with some babble. How's the job going? By the way, hey, yo, what did you get the price on your herd last week? You know, how's it going in the camel trade? You know, have you found new, new shoes for the camel lately? They just sat. They're listening to silence. They didn't have to chime in to explain why it happened. They, they didn't feel that they had to give some pithy comments. They, they, they don't look at him and say, Job, you shouldn't be so upset. Look at the positives. Nobody does that to Job. Nobody, nobody you know, says to him, okay, Job, we're going to solve your grief by giving you this clever little saying. And if you repeat this every day, the pain will go away. They don't do that to him. They don't try to convince him. That somehow, some way, we know exactly how you're feeling because I lost one of my pets last week. The individuals were wise enough to realize something. They realized that there is, as Ecclesiastes said, there is a time for silence. They realized that a word fitly spoken, appropriately stated, is like the golden apple in pictures of silver. They realized that the good words are words that are spoken at appropriate times. And sometimes, what's that old adage about silence? Silence is golden. I was reading the account of one individual who expressed it through his own personal experiences. He writes this. The story is written about him. Joe and his wife, Mary Lou, lost three of their children. One son following surgery when he was 18 days old. Their second son, at age five, died from leukemia. Their third son was 18 years old and killed in a sledding accident. Joe wrote at that time, I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly, saying things I already knew were true. I was unmoved, except for I wish he'd go away. He finally did. And after he left, another came and sat beside me for an hour or more. Didn't say a word. Just listened when I said something. Answered briefly. Then he prayed simply and excused himself. I was moved. I was comforted. 
I hated to see him go. There's moments and lessons that you and I can take from these three guys. Now, I disagree with how they conclude and what advice they give later on. But when it comes to their actions, these are friends. These are individuals that they waited on Job for this period of time. They let him speak for seven days. Can you imagine holding your tongue for seven days? I'd die. <laughs> you can say amen. Okay, that's a... So would you. Seven days. Seven days of silence? Would you give up seven days of your life for a friend? We would say that, but when somebody's ill, do we even show up? When the widow is by herself, do you even call? Seven days. Wow. Why'd they do it? Well, the simple answer, short answer is, they're his friends. They're his friends. There's got to be more to it than that. It's got to be much more than just a friend. Lots of people claim friendship. These guys had some wisdom. Can I give you the two pieces of wisdom that I think stands out from their lives? Number one is this. They realize people are more important than possessions. People relationships are more important than possessions. I remember learning that lesson real quick, not real quickly, but as a, as a dad in early years, that we bought, we went out and got some new furniture because I was working for his furniture store at the time, and we got it, and for some reason we bought soft pine furniture and end tables. And it was wonderful, and it was beautiful until we had kids. When we had kids, their thing of toys is... You give a little boy a toy car, what does he want to do? He's going to run, zoom, zoom. And if it's one of those, you know, metal box type things, they don't just run it over carefully. What do they do? They bang it into it. And I remember coming home one day and, you know, seeing the two-year-old going bonkers, literally, on our pine end table. And it was like, what is wrong with you, child? Don't you know we spent 150 bucks on this thing? You know, this was expensive. This was, and it's, it's, it was supposed to last us for years, hopefully beyond you. And here you are, you're beating it up. And don't you know what toys can do to furniture? And he looked at me like, no. <laughs> and my wife and I had a conversation about that afterwards. What's more important? That piece of pine or that child? The child's more important. We would all say, yes, that's true, but how do we respond to them? Job's friends, Job's friends in this story, they realized he was important whether he had possessions or not. And at this moment, it's not. They didn't abdicate. They didn't, they didn't leave him. They didn't give up on him because now he couldn't do for them. Now he had nothing to offer them, and he didn't. His friendship was more important than him having possessions. Do we operate that way? That we will invest in somebody who may never return to us? We invest in somebody who can't benefit us? They did. They realized that Job was more important than their own possessions. 
Time out from my own business. I need to be with Job. They realized people are important. That friends are really, really, really more important than our stuff. That sometimes people are more important than the project you have going at the home. That you must get done in your schedule rather than take an evening and spend time with somebody who's hurting. That people are more important at moments to just sit and be with than the car. Than shopping. And I'm not decrying that those other responsibilities are important, but when it comes to relationships, how important they are. Wise woman made a killing on her first book entitled, The Grass is Always Greener Over the Septic Tank. She has a point, does she not? She wrote as uh, in the mid-90s she was diagnosed with cancer. And her last article that she wrote before she passed away She entitled the article, as you see there, If I Had to Live My Life All Over Again, she wrote these words. If I had to live my life all over again, I would eat more ice cream and less cottage cheese. I would burn that pink candle that was sculptured by my my five-year-old before it melted while being stored in the attic. If I had to do it all over, I would have cherished every minute of my nine months of pregnancy instead of wishing so much of it away because this was my only chance in life to assist God in a miracle. If I had to do it all over, I would have invited friends over to dinner, even if the carpet was stained and the sofa was faded. If I had to do it all over, I would have taken the time to listen to my granddad's ramblings about his childhood. If I had to do it all over, I would have sat cross-legged in the lawn with my children and never worried about the grass stains. If I had to do it all over, I would never have said, Later! Now go get washed up for dinner when my child kissed me impetuously. If I had to do it all over, I would say, I love you, I'm sorry, I'm listening more and more than what I normally did. If you had to do it all over, would relationships become more valuable? There was one man who was commenting, he said, I saw two children at the beach. And there they were, they were building their sandcastles and they were so excited about their sandcastles they were investing their time, their energy and the waves were coming up and they were getting silly and all of a sudden the waves started coming up more and it hit the back of their legs so they jumped up and they ran away up the beach a little bit, looked back and their sandcastles all of a sudden got washed over by the next incoming wave and basically collapsed it all. I looked, how would these two little preschoolers respond to their, all of their effort and their work being washed away. I expected the tears to roll, and they just looked with sad faces towards each other, and then they smiled, grabbed each other's hands, and they ran laughing up the beach. And he wrote, he said, this is life. This is what's important. We spend so much time on the sandcastles of houses and cars and bank accounts. And it's all going to wash away one day. And the thing that really makes life worthwhile is having somebody you can hold hands in hand, hand in hand with, laughing together. That lasts. One dad learned it the hard way. Busy dad. He had a couple kids by this point, And life was getting busier at work. 
And as he got busier and busier, he spent less and less time with the kids, especially number two, the little girl, who was now two, three years old. And wife said to him one day, you know, you, you promised that what you were going to do when the girls were real little, you were going to take them out on daddy-daughter dates. But you don't understand. It's so busy. My Saturdays now, I've got to get these projects done because I'm working so many hours during the week. But your daughter needs you. You used to do that with the older one and do it periodically, but this one you've never yet taken on a daddy-daughter date. And so he said, okay. And his wife made him set in his schedule one of the next couple Saturdays to just take her out for breakfast. And the man kind of did it a little bit reluctantly, but once he got her in the car and they were headed for the restaurant, he cheered up and it was like, we're going to have a good time. And they're sitting in the restaurant, they ordered their food, and she's all excited. She is kind of doing the things that little kids can, you know, that they never sit still. And when you say sit still, they say, I am, when they're doing this. And she was all over the booth, and he said, honey, can you just sit there kind of still? I want to talk to you. And she's like, okay, daddy. And she's back and forth, and all of a sudden he said, honey, I want to tell you how much I love you. I want to tell you how precious you are and how much we appreciate and how we prayed for you. And you are a special gift from God. And she is sitting in rapt attention, staring into his eyes. The waitress comes up, puts the food down, She's still staring, and Daddy says, okay, let's eat. And he takes his fork and his knife, and she reaches across, pushes his hands down. More, Daddy, more. The dad who wrote the account said, I said some more sweet things to her. And she just sat and listened. I told her about how smart she is and all these things, and she just... And when I picked up my knife and fork and said, let's eat, she reached across and said, more, Daddy, more. He said, after the fourth time, she was ready to eat. Later that week, she's at home playing and with Mom's watching and she's playing and all of a sudden she turns to Mom and says, Mom, I'm special. Daddy told me so. Does your daughter need, your son need, time with you? Does your spouse? See, people relationships are more important than possessions. They are, more, they are what's going to last. These wise men knew that. Can I give you the other important truth that these men understood? Not only that people are more important than possessions, Presence is most important if there's problems. We need the presence of others at times. We need those people to (coughs) show up, come and spend time. We need the individuals to bear one another's burdens. You can't do it when you keep a distance, when you don't contact when you don't go to them. We are told specifically that what we're supposed to do is that as a body, we're supposed to feel, we're supposed to try to alleviate, we're supposed to assist those who are in pain and agony. We're supposed to come to them. We're supposed to comfort them. We're supposed to encourage those who are struggling and who are weak. It doesn't get done when we get together on a Sunday morning. 
That's not the accomplishment when people need other people during the week. When they need you to pay attention. When they need you to make a meal. When they need you to visit. To go out of your busy way and your busy schedules. And I know your lives are busy with sports and school and all kinds of activity. But if you can't learn to make time for people now, it's not going to change when you get out of college or high school. It's who you are. Are you an individual who says people are more important at times, especially when there's problems, I need to be there? Yes, you have work. Yes, you have responsibilities. But they need you. The ministry of presence is the most powerful ministry that we can often do. And you know what the amazing part is? Everyone in this room can do it. You don't have to teach. You don't have to be skilled. You don't have to be profound. You just need to be there. Do you remember when Jesus came at the tomb of Lazarus? Mary, you know, his tomb and Mary and Martha were there. Do you remember how Jesus lectured? He didn't. He gave words of comfort to Mary. But when he gathered with, Mar with um, to Martha, but when he gathered with Mary and all the people were around, he doesn't preach. When all of a sudden everybody's gathered there by the tomb, what does Jesus do? Shortest verse. He wept. He connected with the people. He empathized with the people. He felt with the people. He wept. He was there. And everyone in the crowd responded with this statement. See how much he... The test of love is not how profound we can be. It's are we present? Are we there? Do we show up? This is something that everyone in this room can do. For somebody who feels lonely, somebody who feels like they're an outsider, somebody who feels lost, somebody who feels the struggle of going through an illness, somebody who feels the loneliness of being a widow or a widower, presence is important. It is critical. All you need to be is available in the busyness of your life. The last few weeks I've been giving you one, one pithy thought to walk away. God is good. Bless God. Can I give you a pithy thought that is probably going to be the hardest little thing to do in your life? Put others first. Put others first this week. Put others first in the way that you give some extra time in your busy schedule to your own family, to your own relatives, to your own parents. Give a hand. Put others first. Call somebody. Go visit somebody who's a shut-in. Go out of your way to just sit and listen without looking at the clock and saying, i got to move. i got to get out of here. Visit someone. Take out of your busy schedule to invite and spend some time with a widow, with a widower. Make a meal for somebody who's hurting. Take somebody out for a meal if you're a lousy cook like me. Do something where you extend yourself to others 
instead of thinking about your schedule and your uncomfortable being uncomfortable, get out of your comfort zone and reach out to be there for somebody else. Do your project later. Yes, I know we've got projects. I know we're busy. But those projects, they won't make a difference in eternity. People will. Give time. Give time. This week, put others first. Become more like Christ.